Hi, good morning. Going to continue in Matthew 26, and we're looking at Peter's denials of the Lord in Gethsemane. So let's uh, let's start with a prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, as we come to these records, thinking about Peter's denials and your dear son in, in his crisis in Gethsemane, we pray, Father, that you will guide us, that you will give us your strength, that we might see ourselves in these situations, and that we might realize that Though the Lord was of our nature, we have failed to, to come to that extent of, of striving against sin unto blood, which, which he did. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you will strengthen us in our faith that all the same, your grace is sufficient for us. And we pray that we might follow in Peter's steps and believing finally that your grace is enough to, to overcome all those barriers that we put up between you and ourselves. And we thank you, Father, for these records, and we pray for your your guidance as we seek to understand them now. For his sake. Amen. So, picking up from uh, verse 33, Peter says, Though all should be offended because of you, yet will I never be offended. Now, three times, three times, uh, well, Peter states that he will not fail the Lord, and of course three times he does deny the Lord. And three times, as we're going to see in Gethsemane, he falls asleep. There's a triple failure there as, as well, as well as in the three denials. And, of course, at the third appearance of Jesus, this is the third time that the Lord had appeared after his resurrection, it says in John 21, at that third appearance of Jesus, Jesus three times asks Peter, do you love me? And again, it's by a charcoal fire, in John 21, by the Sea of Galilee, just as here in, uh, in Matthew 26, it was by a charcoal fire that Peter three times denied the Lord. So there's this theme of, of three, uh, a theme of tripleisms running through the record, and we, we wonder why that is. Well, partly it's because I, I'm convinced the Gospels are intended to be memorized, and this kind of thing assists memorization. But also, I think you see, uh, running through the whole theme of Peter's failure, you see God's hand. Because he couldn't have, have planned to deny the Lord three times or to fall asleep three times in Gethsemane. You understand why the, the Lord Jesus then later three times says to him, Do you love me, Peter? Uh, but somehow, even in human sin, it is all under God's overall hand. Now, we, looking back at this whole incident, we can see this theme of tribalism as well through the whole thing. And I, I think that that is to just demonstrate to us that even in failure, even in human failure, God is there, the hand of God, working out a bigger program than what we can immediately see is there. And that's a, that, that's a comfort, both to ourselves and our own failure, and I think uh, also in trying to make sense of other people's failures that uh, we come across in our lives. Well, he says, though all should be offended, yet will not I. And that's why at the end, in John 21, the Lord has to say to Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these? And all he can say is, well, Lord, you know that I love you. He doesn't comment on, do you love me more than these? Because he understands that he has done wrong. And it's this spiritual elitism, this idea that I am greater than others spiritually, that it's this which is so upsetting to the Lord. And although, as we read here in this chapter, they all said the same, 
it's clear that Peter is being focused upon. And it's not to humiliate him, it's to simply point out the danger of claiming that we are better than our brethren. And as we face up to, to the weakness of our brethren, that is something which, which crosses the mind of all of us uh, at times, and some give into it uh, big time. And he says, I will never be offended. And literally, the Greek means not once, not at any time. And of course, the Lord goes on to say, well, not just once, but actually you will three times deny that, that you know me. Even if I should die with you, verse 35, and the idea really is, even if it's necessary that I should so much as die with you. He sees death with Jesus as the absolute ultimate point, and he's saying, well, even if that were necessary, I, I would still do that. And by saying that, he has missed the point. And he missed the point back in Matthew 16 as well, where the Lord said that you've got to pick up your cross and follow me. And Peter simply walks behind Jesus. And then Peter, uh, Jesus turns and says to Peter, because he's walking behind him, if you really want to follow me, then pick up your cross and walk after me. And when he says, get behind me, Satan, he is referring to Peter, his adversary, and he's saying the same word, walk behind me, Satan, Peter, walk behind me and carry your cross to the end, to where I'm going, and don't seek to dissuade me from dying on the cross, because you know that if I die on the cross, you also, therefore, as my follower, will have to die with me. So Peter and the others thought that you could follow Jesus by just walking behind him. And that's why the Lord turns to them and says, no, it's not just walking behind me physically. You take up your cross and follow me to, to crucifixion, to Golgotha. And he still hasn't got that because the idea that, yes, you really must die with Jesus. He's saying, well, you know, if in the, the worst possible case, even if it came to death, well, I would still do that. He's still missing the point to some degree. Of course, the way that he does follow Jesus afar off under the palace of the, of the high priest, this again is the same idea. He will not identify with Jesus in, in actually dying with him. He wants to sort of uh, physically follow him without actually engaging in the death with him. And of course, as we examine ourselves week by week as we break bread and we wonder to what degree the cross of Christ is really being picked up by me, then I think you do see the same sense that am I just a follower? Am I just walking sort of in the group behind in the, the sort of the culture of Christianity? Or do I really get it that actually the call that I have received is to really die in pain, is to really bit by bit sacrifice all that I once held dear for him? Not to just sing the songs and have the social club, etc., and the, the culture of being Christian, but actually cross-carrying Christianity. Now, he says, and I will never uh, deny you, even though I should die with you, yet will I not deny you. And yet we know that he goes on three times to do just that. Now, Jesus clearly has said uh, in Matthew 10, verse 33, that if you deny me before men, then I shall deny you at the day of judgment. Well, when you come later on in this chapter to read about the denials, Peter does do the, de the denials, it says, before them all, just in fulfillment of Matthew 10.33, if you deny me before men, before them all, then I will deny you at the last day. 
So Peter really is being set up as experiencing condemnation even in this life. Paul repeats the idea in 2 Timothy 2.12 where he says that if we deny him, he will deny us. And Peter does deny the Lord three times. So then he really does set himself up as the condemned. He acts as the condemned. And when it finally finishes with him going out and weeping bitterly, this is the weeping and gnashing of teeth of the rejected. And when we're going to read later on that he denies with oaths, these are not expletives. These are Jewish oaths to the effect that may I not be in your kingdom if this is true. May I be rejected from the kingdom of God of the last day if this is true. And he used those oaths, and of course it wasn't true. And so he really stood condemned. He really did stand condemned. But, uh, although he stood condemned, he was forgiven. And this is, of course, the great point, that we all sin, and each sin deserves condemnation. And we receive that condemnation, but the point is that the, the verdict is changed. That's the point. The verdict is changed. That's the point. Now, just imagine that you come to the Day of Judgment and you're found guilty, you're condemned, and you beg the Lord, ah, oh, please, please, yes, yes, you're right, I know, I know, please forgive me, please change it. And just imagine he says, yeah, okay, okay, Duncan, I'll change it, you're in the kingdom. You know, with what gratefulness would we then enter the kingdom? But the point is that this happens in this life time and again, that we sin, we are condemned, and yet we are forgiven. And this is really the classic case here with Peter. So good thinking that, oh, that was Peter, bad Peter. You know, we are all the same, are, are we not, time and again. Now, the experience that Peter had of denial of the Lord and yet being restored, converted and forgiven, this is the basis for his appeal to others. And that's why I think the appeals that he makes for Israel to repent in the early chapters of Acts uh, were so blessed because nobody at any time in history has made such appeals and got thousands of people to be cut to the heart and be baptized immediately. Not even Paul did this ever, not that's recorded, but Peter did. And of course it happened a stone's throw from the high priest's palace where he'd made these denials and just, what, at the most six weeks afterwards, everybody knew this is the guy who denied him. And yet, on that basis of having realized his own forgiveness, he appeals to them. And he says to them in Acts 3, you denied him, you denied Jesus in the presence of Pontius Pilate. Well, that's exactly what he did. And he's aware of that. When he appeals to them to repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. This is exactly what had happened to him. When you are converted, Peter, strengthen your brethren. And that's just what happened to him. He sinned, he went to the cross, he was converted. And that's what he's asking other people to do. And that's why he's so successful. Now, all this idea that an evangelist has got to be, you know, absolutely uh, spotless in their record, etc., with the nice smiley wife next to them and the obedient kiddies and all that kind of stuff, this is a nonsense. This doesn't convert anybody because everybody is watching that. 
deeply aware of their own dysfunction, their own spiritual failure. Peter, on the basis of his own weakness and his own experience of grace, appealed to people to repent and to be forgiven, and he made these huge conversions because of that, because he was credible. And it was the same in his pastoral work, because on the basis of this, he was converted and he strengthened his brethren. And he strengthened his brethren by being told three times in John 21, go feed my lambs. And how did he do that? Well, if you read his letters, 1 and 2 Peter, they are full of reference, directly and indirectly, to his own failure. For example, he says in 2 Peter 2 verse 1, uh, talking about false teachers, he's talking about how terrible these people are, he says they even deny the Lord who bought them. Well, who denied the Lord? It was, it was Peter, and he knew that. And he's saying that that was the worst possible imaginable sin that I did. Now, how then did Peter get to this point of being able to strengthen his brethren? Well, although we're jumping ahead a bit, uh, when he goes out there from the Lord's presence, exo, exo, uh, that Greek word outside of the Lord's presence, the word that is used about uh, the rejected being outside, being out of the New Jerusalem, being outside uh, of the Lord's presence, cast out from his presence, it's all, they all use this word. There he is standing condemned, and he's really in the same position as Judas. They did effectively the same sin in essence. Judas goes and kills himself, but Peter, it seems, went to the cross. He says that he is also a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He writes that in his first letter. So then he went to the cross, not standing with the women and maybe John, but standing alone, maybe disguised, so that he wouldn't be recognized. And he went to the cross and surely he repented and associates himself again with the, with the, the disciples and then the Lord has that triple interview with him on his third revelation to the disciples and says, now you can go and feed my lambs, and feed my sheep, etc. So then, <clears throat> that is how he got there, by looking at the cross and realizing that there, there is my hope of forgiveness. There, there is enough grace for me. Whereas Judas, the only difference between them was that he just couldn't believe in grace. He did repent, it seems to me, in the sense that he regretted. He tried to put it right. He took the money back into the temple treasury, etc. Uh, but on a personal level, he could not believe in grace, whereas Peter could. And that's the difference between them. So, carrying on now with the Jesus in Gethsemane, he makes this warning to the disciples, uh, and to Peter particularly, about the, the triple denial. And then they go to Gethsemane, he says, you sit here while I go and pray over there. And he takes with him 37, Peter, James, and John. Well, that whole situation is very similar to Moses. He leaves the camp of Israel, he goes up into the mountain to pray with the Father and takes Joshua with him. And then he comes back and he finds Israel in apostasy. So I think the Lord wants them to see that similarity. And is saying, now look, watch and pray, stand with me, etc. Uh, but again, they fail. They fail to get the hint 
And this is how the Lord operates with us in life. We wonder how he operates. We talk about a two-way relationship with the Lord. Uh, we pray to him. We read his word. Um, but how does he communicate back to us? Well, he does. But I think he does it by nudges and by indirect allusion, putting you in a situation where you're intended to see the similarities with something that's happened previously in, in life. Uh, in, in biblical history. And if you don't get it, well, you don't get it. The Lord is not jumping out in front of you, sort of giving you a message or, or whatever. He is doing it more indirectly. He, whilst we, he says, verse 38, my soul is sorrowful even unto death. Now, I think what he's saying is that the huge psychological burden upon him was enough to almost kill him. Now, Peter talks glibly about, yes, I'm ready to die with you. Well, actually, the death of the cross was not only the, the physical death. It was the huge psychological burden that the Lord carried. Now, he asks them to, to watch with me. And the, the word literally means stay awake. That's uh, 38. It literally means to stay awake. Uh, but... Of course, to continue in prayer is what he what he means, and they they fail, don't they? They they nod off to sleep three times. Now, I think the intention was that at the end of it, Peter should have just said to the Lord, Lord, you told me that I'm going to three times deny you. Um, well, I've just three times failed you, Lord. I I take back my my strong commitment that I will not do that because I realise I'm weak. Now, again, you, you know, he shouldn't have gone to sleep. But he did. And the point is that the Lord worked through that failure. It was through that failure that the Lord was trying to stop him commit a bigger failure. And yet he doesn't get it. He doesn't see it. And this is the need for self-examination, not in the few minutes or seconds even as the, the emblems come towards us on, uh, on a Sunday at a Breaking the Bread meeting, but uh, generally in our lives. This is the need for self-examination, to, to look at our lives and, and try to, to see God's hand and to see how he's leading us, even through our own failures. Now, <clears throat> keep awake, this is what he's saying in 38, and that is the watchword that runs throughout the Olivet Prophecy. For example, Matthew 24, 42 and 43. That in the last days you must keep awake, be watchful, and don't become sleepy in the very last days. This is just one of a whole string of connections between the Olivet Prophecy, talking about the generation of the very last days, and the situation uh, in the Lord's Passion and in Gethsemane. And I think those connections are there because the idea is that the last generation, which may well be us, will be the only generation that will not taste of death. If the Lord comes now, we come to judgment, we who are alive and remain, we come to judgment, and then by grace we go into eternity. And we will never have actually died. And that's why the tribulation of the last days is such that it will lead us to identify with the sufferings of Jesus, with the death of Jesus, so that we might share in his resurrection life. 
So it's not going to be a pleasant thing living in the very last days because we will be brought into identity with, with him, with his death. Well, all the way through 1 Thessalonians, there are connections, especially in chapters 4 and 5, back to the Olivet Prophecy and to Gethsemane. Let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch, Thessalonians 5 verse 6. This is saying, don't be like the disciples in Gethsemane. Don't sleep as others did. And yet he says that the comfort of grace, 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 10, is that whether we watch or sleep, we shall be accepted by him. And it seems to be saying that even if you fail to be watchful, you will still be saved by grace if you abide in him. And that's just like the disciples. They did not watch as they should have done, and yet ultimately they were still saved. So then the Lord prays in, in Gethsemane, Oh my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. It was so difficult for him to drink that cup. And yet just a few hours before, he had taken his cup and shared it with the disciples and said, You drink this. So, to break bread properly is not an easy thing, is it? Just as it was not easy for the Lord to take that cup, finally. Now, this whole thing is difficult, is it not? He prays to the Father uh, for the cup to pass from him. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And I think what we have to factor in here is the Lord's later comment within this chapter when the, uh, the disciples try to, to rescue the Lord from, from uh, imminent death he says look uh, don't, don't do this because don't you know that I can call twelve legions of angels right now the Father will give them to me immediately now, that must be factored into our understanding of this whole thing about, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He says, you know, there's you twelve men, as it were, willing to fight for me. Well, actually, yeah, I've got twelve legions, not of men, but of angels. There the, the Jews are, using the Roman temple guard, part of the Roman legion. Well, i got twelve legions, not of men, but of angels, who I could use. Now, that must be factored in here. In other words, he could have changed the course of events. He could have changed the whole nature of what happened. Now, we can, I think, skim read this uh, situation in verse 39 and 40 as if he's saying, look, I don't want to do this. And God says, no, sorry, but you've got to do it. And he says, okay, well, well, I don't want to do your will, but I'll do it. Okay, I submit to your will when it's not what I want to do. I'm not sure that is right. I think that there's a dialogue here where in the end he is saying, the, the son is saying, okay, your will is now as my will. And that's why he keeps on saying, or the record keeps on saying, this must happen that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And Jesus himself says to, to the disciples, uh, how, how can it be if you fight for me? Well, then the scriptures they can't be fulfilled. It wasn't that he was just trying to uh, bring about fulfillment of scripture for the sake of fulfilling Bible prophecies. 
I think the whole idea of your will be done and that the scriptures might be fulfilled are parallel. He's saying that the, the will of God is for this to happen and I want to do the will of God, therefore I shall willingly go ahead with this. And yet the struggle involves a recognition that it didn't have to be that way. And if you see what I mean, that makes what he did even more wonderful and even more uh, righteous and compelling in that he did not have to do this. There could have been salvation in some other way. Now, last time we looked earlier in Matthew 26 at the idea of the cup of the New Testament, and I said that the New Covenant was made before the Old Covenant, and that the death of Christ was to confirm that covenant. It, was to, uh, it wasn't to bring it into power. It was already in force. It was to persuade us that God wanted to commend his love toward men through the death of the cross. Now, it didn't actually mean that God could not forgive men without the death of Christ. The new covenant was operating before the old covenant. God can forgive, can save who he wants, how he wants, as he wants, when he wants. You can't put a circle around God and say you can't act outside of this, this boundary. And one thing I most dislike about a sort of the view of the atonement that is pushed by some writers, and Robert Roberts was a, a classic example, is that they end up saying, well, God had to do it this way because he had no other option. He had to do it this way. And this idea that God had no other option, I, I find quite, uh, uh, really quite, uh, quite wrong, quite seriously wrong. Uh, God could do and can do as he wishes. The death of Christ was in order to realize what is called in Hebrews 2 verse 3, such great salvation. Now the fact that the writer there talks about salvation as having a quality, such great salvation, would indicate to me that a lesser salvation was possible. But the fact that the Lord died as he did meant that the, the highest form of salvation was achieved. You've got the same in Hebrews 7.25, that he might save to the uttermost those that come unto God by him. Salvation to the uttermost, again implies a quality to salvation. Jesus was obedient, Philippians 2, unto death, and even to the death of the cross. As if, you know, there were all sorts of ways that his death could have been achieved. He could have, you know, in the classical way, drunk, drunk poison or taken a knife and, and, and slit his throat to fulfill the killing of the animal sacrifices, etc. But he chose to bring about the greatest level of salvation. This was the Father's will, uh, and of course Bible prophecy can have multiple fulfillments in various ways. It's not that the prophecies would have been without fulfillment, but he chose, he chose not to do that. He chose to, to go the ideal way of the Father to the end. Now, with God, all things are possible. And that, again, must be, must be factored in and given its due weight. Uh, he can save people without the death of Christ, of course. Otherwise, you're trying to put a circle around God and say, you can't act outside of the circle. But he didn't. He chose to go this way, and the Son chose to willingly cooperate to the end. And that is what makes the Lord's achievement so huge. 
that there were other possibilities, for example, involving the calling down of legions of angels. But that would have been granted to him, but he chose not to. Now, I, I said, and we said in our opening prayer, that we wanted to see ourselves in all these things. We, we read um, in verse 39, uh, the Lord says, let this cup pass from me. Well, when you read in 2 Corinthians 12 about Paul's struggle with his thorn in the flesh, he says that he also had prayed for the Lord, to the Lord three times that this thing might be taken from him, that it might depart from me. This is the same phrase here, that this cup might pass from me. So then he clearly was aware of Gethsemane, and he saw in the essence of it the essence of his own struggle with this thorn in the flesh. So then the Lord there is not to be seen just as him there. He is there, our pattern, in all our struggles. Uh, and into those struggles, his spirit breaks through. Now, just remember, as we're reading these accounts of these brief prayers, that this would have gone on at least for as long as was required for the disciples to fall asleep. When the Lord says, could you not watch with me even for one hour, that implies that, uh, well, it took about an hour to say these very few words. So he may have prayed the same words several times over. That's why there's some differences between the Gospels in, in the wording of these prayers. All the same, each word would have been given its meaning. And we can again stop and take a lesson there in that we have to put meaning into the words of prayer. And so often our prayers are just a rattling off of words, are they not? Whereas here the Lord is obviously putting meaning into every word, that it takes him an hour to pray a few words that could be rattled off in about ten seconds. Not as I will, but as you will. You know, you, you wonder how long that took him to come out with those words. And that's, of course, a, a good verse to use with our Trinitarian friends, that the will of God and the will of Jesus were not one and the same. This is not a puppet playing a role. This is the Son of Man. Uh, really struggling to be uh, as God, to, to really have the will of God as his own will. Well, he comes and finds them sleeping, verse 40. Uh, these very words, coming and finding, are so often used about the second coming. Uh, Blessed is the man whom his Lord, when he comes, shall find so doing. When the Son of Man comes, shall he find faith on the earth. So then, the Lord's coming to the disciples here is some sort of premonition of his second coming. And he finds them sleeping. And we're told in Thessalonians that we should not be sleeping when the Lord comes. So then, really, they all have their uh, sort of pretaste, their foretaste of condemnation at the last day. And they really should have been more penitent of that, and it was, of course, only later, really, with Peter especially, uh, when again he fails three times, that he really feels 
that condemnation experience. And if we wonder why we don't have energy in our worship, in our thankfulness, why we're not more motivated in our zeal in serving the Lord, maybe it's because of this, that we have not really experienced condemnation, because we are so up ourselves that we will not accept that we are serious sinners who really have been condemned but have really been forgiven and the verdict has been changed for you, for me. And this then is the motive for our works, for our praise, for our zeal, etc. for him and for our humility, I might say as well. Couldn't you watch with me? Verse 40, the Lord says. Now, I've said that Peter all the time is alluding to his own failures. Uh, and in First Peter 5, verse 8, he tells his converts to be watchful. Be watchful. Well, he wrote that knowing that he knew and knowing that they knew full well, as the Gospels were memorized by heart by the early converts, that he had not been watchful. He says, watch unto prayer. He says, First Peter 4, verse 7, that's exactly what the Lord told him to do, and three times he didn't do it. So, he's not being a hypocrite. He's not saying, look, do what I say, but not as I did. He's saying, do as I say, and I have uh, a credibility to ask you to do this because I failed in this myself. Likewise, when he says the devil is prowling around, trying to get you, as so Peter 5 verse 8, this is exactly what the Lord had said to Peter in Luke twenty two thirty one: that Satan has desired to have you. But I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith fail not. Well, the Lord then says, 41, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Well, again, Paul seems to refer to that, referring to himself, all the way through Romans, Romans 7 where he talks about the weakness of his flesh and the willingness of his spirit. This is, this is uh, maybe not a, a specific quotation, but reading through what he says there, clearly this is uh, the basis of his illusion. So again, these men there in Gethsemane in their failure were poor and they are us. This is where these records become alive and not mere history. Verse 43, he, came, he comes and finds them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. Well, yes, obviously their eyes were heavy. Um, I think you notice there the grace of inspiration, that uh, God counts righteousness to them, and he almost makes excuses by saying, well, poor darlings, their eyes were heavy. When clearly, according to the illusions in Thessalonians, to, to be asleep when you've been asked to stay awake is a pretty serious failure. The only other time the Greek word translated heavy occurs in the Gospels is in Luke 9.32, when again it's used about the heaviness of sleep, and again it's used about the same three men, Peter, James, and John, sleeping on the Mount of Transfiguration, while the Lord is in active dialogue a little way away with the Father. Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. And Mark's record uh, in Mark 9 adds, 
but they didn't know what to say to Jesus. And the parallel record to Matthew 26 here is in Mark 14, verse 40, and it says that when Jesus came and found them asleep again, they did not know what to answer him. So there's a clear parallel being made. And I think the parallel is that their failure on the Mount of Transfiguration was intended to be learnt from by them so that they wouldn't make the same mistake again here in the Garden of Gethsemane. But they did. And again with Peter, the triple failure here in Gethsemane was supposed to be his lesson against triple failure later that evening when he denies the Lord. But again, he, he didn't get it. And this is how God works with us so many times. We don't get it. Now, God doesn't give up. This is the great thing about God. He keeps on trying and keeps on working with us. And that is what's so incredible. And that's why we in our turn should keep on working with others and never give up with any lost sheep at all. Finally, the third time the Lord comes, they're sleeping, and he says, 45, sleep on them. And he says that to them while they were asleep. And this is absolutely the loving parent talking to the sleeping child. Is it not? How else to understand this? Because he goes on to, to say to them, verse 46, rise up, wake up, let's be going. But while they're asleep, he says to them, sleep on now and take your rest. The hour is at hand. This is the Son of Man ultimately alone, really. The man he had most trusted on had, had let him down, and yet... Instead of being angry with them, which I think I would have been, like being inclined to prod them or kick them or, you know, say, guys, you know, come on, this is pathetic. Instead, he talks to them with such grace while they're still asleep. And I, I see that grace there running through all his actions, especially at this time of his death and passion, where the, temp the temptation surely would have been to be totally self-obsessed, to be thinking, look, I've got to keep myself perfect, um, not let these guys drag me down, but instead he's so thoughtful for them. Well, let us be going, he says, 46, and uh, I think if that's really what he meant, I know that's what old English translations say, but I think if that's what he meant, I think another Greek construction would have been used. The, the term here really does mean, let us lead on, let us lead on. In other words, as he's facing his arrest, he is in control. I'm in control of this. We are the leaders in all this. Well, they come with uh, a great multitude carrying swords and staves. And professional soldiers don't carry staves, so they're just bits of wood. So th these were the hoods. This was the, uh, the rabble that had been gathered, really, um, by the uh, priests and by Judas. A great multitude. And that's a tacit recognition, I think, of the, the loyalty of the disciples. They realized those 11 men really could make some trouble. And I, th I think it, this is a great example of where these records are, are inspired because of the internal congruence. The fact there were men with swords, that is the... Uh, maybe the temple guard, uh, and a lot of people with staves, bits of wood. Well, 
I would say they were just rabble-rousers or hoots that had been kind of hired for the job. And that's why Judas says to them, look, it's the one I kiss, that's him. He's the one you need to take. Well, Jesus has been with them in the temple, uh, teaching, and he was a public figure. So these guys, what, they didn't recognize who Jesus was? You could say it's because it was dark, but um, I would say that more to the point, these guys who were actually doing the arrest, they didn't even know Jesus. They, they had not been in the temple, they had not been around in Jerusalem, watching this man teaching. Um, they, he was unknown to them. And they are the ones with the staves, it seems to me, with the pieces of wood. Well, he comes to Jesus and kisses him. This is the, uh, the classic betrayal. And Jesus says, and again you notice his grace in verse 50, Friend, for what have you come? Wherefore? For what have you come? And I think that even in that, there is an appeal for repentance. I really think that Judas did what he did for the sake of money. He says to the Jews at the start, What will you give me, and I will betray him unto you? And they agree for 30 pieces of silver. So I, I think that one of his motivations was simply financial, and I think that's reflected in the way that finally he throws the money down in the temple in such disgust at himself and at the money. And I think the Lord is asking him to think about that. For what are you doing this, Judas? So, in being betrayed with a kiss, he's still trying to get Judas to repent. And again, we, we, we see the beauty of his character. And instead of being self-obsessed, he is concerned about bringing even Judas to repentance. So Peter then stretches out his hand, 51, and takes the sword. And again you see grace, because in 52, Jesus says, All they that take the sword will perish with the sword. Well, in verse 50, you've just seen him taking the sword. And the Lord says, put it away again, because those who take the sword, just like he's done, are going to perish with the sword. Well, Peter didn't perish with the sword. And he should have done, but that's because the Lord undid the damage that Peter did with that sword. So again and again, you, you see similarities, really, between Judas and Peter. And uh, the, the language of the record uh, brings this out. Um, <clears throat> that this word lambano, take, they that take the sword, it's the same used about how Judas had received or had taken a band of men armed with swords and staves. That's in John 18, verse 3. So they had both, both Peter and Judas, had taken human strength, human military strength. And the Lord is, is trying to get Peter to put that away. Now, Judas brought again his pieces of silver to the Jews. We read in Matthew 27, verse 3. And it's the same word, put up. Bring again your sword into its sheath, Jesus says to Peter. So it's trying to bring out the similarities between the two men. And also Peter alludes to this, I'm sure, when he says in Acts 3, verse 26, that the Lord Jesus... Uh, will turn away every one of you from, their, from your iniquities. 
because it's the same word, turn away, as is used here about put up again, turn away your sword into its sheath. Jesus was trying to get Peter not to sin. And so he's saying to them all in that, that crowd, that's what the Lord wants to do for each of you, to turn you away from your sins just as he did to me. So then Peter follows him afar off in verse 58. And we commented earlier that this is uh, very much the language of of, uh, Matthew 16 when they're following Jesus. And he turns and says to them, look, if you really follow me, if you really follow me, you will pick up your cross and follow me. This word afar off, you know, Peter was afar off when he should have been with Jesus. Um, He uses it in Acts 2 verse 39 to talk about how grace is and forgiveness is for all those who are afar off. And people responded to that immediately and said, yeah, sure, I'll be baptised. Because they, they could see that Peter was reasoning from his own experience. All the way through there in that speech in Acts 2, he's got in mind his own experience of failure. 59, well, the chief priests, elders, and all the council sought false witness against him to put him to death. And in Matthew 27, verse 1, all, all of them uh, decided that he was guilty of death. And yet the Sanhedrin included Nicodemus and Joseph. Now we're told specifically about, about uh, Joseph in Luke 23, that he did not consent with the council. And yet all the council said that Jesus was to die. And again, I think you see grace here in the way that Joseph and Nicodemus are painted so positively, when actually their lack of consent was only internal. Because here it says that they all, including Nicodemus, including Joseph, they all condemned Jesus. They didn't speak up for him. And yet, of course, when they saw him dead, then they both did. They both showed their identity with him. And I think, again, you see grace. Uh, and it, it helps us, I think, in coping with those who, who maybe don't stand up as they should do and be counted in whatever way, maybe for us personally or for the, the, the sake of right or for the Lord Jesus or whatever. Those who go along in their weakness with a majority situation, it could be in voting, it could be in joining the army, it could be all sorts of acts of weakness and cowardice against the Lord Jesus that are done. And how are we to respond to that? Well, we ought to respond with the same grace that the record shows to Joseph and Nicodemus. Although it does seem to me that in over time, over time, uh, it's the Lord's intention that we should be a city set on a hill. The candle cannot be hid. Over time, he will uh, bring about circumstances so that you have to come out, as it were. And that is what happened with uh, Joseph and Nicodemus. We then got this rather miserable story of the trial of Jesus by, by the Sanhedrin. And you see how they're trying to be so righteous They have a load of false witnesses, but they can't accept them because the false witnesses can't agree together. 
you've got to have two people saying the same thing. And then you've got two false witnesses who come and say, I, he said I'm able to destroy the temple of God. But you didn't actually say that. He said, I am the temple of God, you are going to destroy the temple of God, and I will rebuild it after three days. They misquoted him, they had their facts wrong, I mean, they are running this trial in the middle of the night. Um, you know, the, the whole thing is completely wrong. And yet, they committed this huge sin. Yeah, this is the crime of the cosmos. There was no sin uh, ever committed at any point in time, in infinite time, or in infinite space. That was as bad as this. And yet they try to do it under the guise of, of being obedient to God's principles, under the guise of integrity. And you just see the, the huge warning against legalism. You remember how later we're going to read that they were concerned that they, uh, that they couldn't uh, keep the, the priest, the, the feast uh, properly? if they were defiled, and they, they were all very careful about, about legal defilement, etc. And here, in this account of the, the trial of the Lord, they're very careful to try to follow legal precedent, jurisprudence, etc. When actually they are absolutely far away from the Spirit of Christ, and from any kind of basic decency. And then finally, when they think they've nailed him, then they go completely crazy, uh, verse 67, and these apparently cultured men spit in his face and hit him with the palms of their hands. They only did that because they, they thought that he was a heretic, and that therefore they were justified to do this. Well, we've seen this so many times, have we not, that we all have a, a raw basic anger within us. And we quite rightly try to control that. But religious people at times can take that anger and, and when they think that it's uh, justified by their religion or whatever, just release it uh, against someone who is religious, who is of their faith but has differed on some point. And that is exactly what we see happening in so much of church life today. People consider that uh, they are justified in being angry, nasty, vicious, and so forth against someone else because my religion requires it. When all they're doing is like the Jews are doing here, taking certain parts of their faith and their religion and taking them right out of context uh, and allowing that to justify the release of anger against another believer. That's why you'll get brethren with their wide-margin Bibles full of notes and wearing their, their suits, etc., who will come out with the most terrible uh, expletives, and even in my experience on two occasions, use physical violence against someone, in those cases myself, uh, because they are so convinced that they're justified in this. And all it is, they're acting just like the Jews who crucified Jesus. They're seeking to justify their native anger on the basis that you are a heretic. You think differently to how we do, therefore we are justified. And this is, I'm afraid, to follow not Jesus, but those who crucified him. Well, he says to them, verse 64, you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power. 
and coming in the clouds of heaven. That ultimately was their judgment, that they were going to be resurrected to see that. And all too late, they would see Jesus declared as Messiah. And he's, he said that earlier um, to them in chapter 23, verse 39, where he says, You will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. So he foresees their resurrection and judgment and how all too late they will then accept him. And that is so tragic, is it not? That people will come to the day of judgment and desperately want to accept Jesus, but it will be too late. And so now then is our time of opportunity. Now is our time of judgment. They had their opportunity for, for judgment concerning Jesus. So did Peter, so did Judas. And we see really how all of humanity fails. All these different parties, Peter, James and John as well, they all fail. And yet the point is, the point is that Peter repented. That out of that condemnation that we spoke about earlier, when he, he walks out from the presence of the Lord, uh, having brought down condemnation upon himself, and weeps with the, the gnashing of his teeth, sort of weeping, the verdict can be changed. He went to the cross, he was a witness of the sufferings of Christ, he was converted. That's the whole idea when Jesus said, when you're converted, strengthen your brethren, well, he went through this, he went to the cross, he realised that there was his only chance of salvation, and when the Lord was risen, the Lord then says to him, by a charcoal fire, just like here uh, at the end of Matthew 26, go and feed my sheep. So then his whole ministry was based on that experience, and that is exactly the pattern for each of us.